This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Sachi Jyoti, and it's my pleasure to um, introduce our new series. So we've moved on to a new theme, which is the Tantra, also known as the Vajrayana. And um, I'm going to introduce it tonight, and then some of the things that I talk about will be picked up in the future talks. So because the, um, the Vajrayana, the Tantra, is all about images and symbols, um, I thought we'd just start with a few pictures so um, these are images that are from the traditional um, Indo-Tibetan tradition um, that express the Tantra. So we are going to explore those images a little bit more during the talk. But um, in order to understand the Tantra, or the Vajrayana, I'm going to go right back to the beginning, to the Buddha, to uh, the beginning of Buddhism. So the Buddha is, was a human being who wanted to do something about suffering. He saw suffering around him. And um, he explored several paths to help him come to the end of his own suffering and to help other people to stop suffering as well. And in the end, he had a very profound, completely transformative experience underneath the Bodhi tree, and in which he understood, he saw what are the causes of suffering and what we can do to overcome it ourselves, in ourselves. So sitting in meditation under the Bodhi tree, he saw the nature of reality, how the unenlightened mind perceives the world wrongly through the lenses of our greed, our hatred, and our ignorance about how things work. And that this causes us suffering, and it also, through it, we cause other people suffering as well, other beings suffering. And if you remember your introductory course, you'll remember that um, the Buddha saw clearly that everything is changing all the time, nothing is permanent, He saw that all life is uh, deeply interconnected. Everything is deeply interconnected. And he saw that happiness comes from within, not from outer objects or experiences. And having seen this and much else more than that, he then tried to find ways of communicating it to others. And it wasn't easy for him to communicate it because his experience went beyond words, uh, beyond concepts, beyond what language can communicate. Because language splits the world up into separate ideals and concepts, but the enlightenment experience by its own very, by its very nature is uncommunicable using words directly. I think his very presence, though, communicated quite a great deal. So his kindness, his compassion for the suffering of all beings, his wisdom, the way he lived his life. So he lived a life as a homeless wanderer. He was a wild man of the jungle. He, um, he wore rags, He only ate the food he'd been given, which is quite a thing, isn't it, to think that every day you'd go out with a begging bowl and you'd only eat what you were given. And, you know, he could have been um, very... He was very uh, respected, very powerful. I'm sure he could have lived a very comfortable life if he'd wanted to. So during his wanderings, his homeless wanderings, he gave lots of teachings to lots of different people. And um, he gave people meditation practices. He gave people... um, the idea that living ethically would help them, that studying the Dharma, that uh, forming friendships, that this would all help people to awaken, to also experience the awakening that he'd had, the way that he'd seen reality as it is. And uh, many people at the time did experience that awakening and did share that experience. However, after he died, his uh, followers had to then rely just on his teachings. Not ha- they didn't have his physical presence anymore. 
Um, he left a huge tradition of many teachings, and um, they were eventually written down a few hundred years after he died. And um, they gave rise to the first kind of wave of Buddhism, which is called the Hinayana. So that's on this flip chart here. Um, Hinayana means the sort of uh, lower path, so it's a little lesser path, so it's a little bit of a kind of derogatory thing to say. So um, that kind of group of teachings is also known as the Theravadan, but it was the, the Hinayana. And um, I suppose what happened was, um, that's the teachings that we find in the Pali Canon, um, and what happened was over the years, various institutions developed, uh, monks and nuns were supported by lay people, started to perhaps live quite a comfortable life, um, eating well, um, and spent a quite a lot of time analysing the teachings, classifying them, and making them an academic study. So it became less, for some people, it became less about actually practising the teachings, and um, more about kind of um, academically understanding the teachings. So things became quite rule-bound. You know, there were lots of rules that had been um, developed to help the, the Sangha live together, but they became a little bit taken as you have to live like that. You know, they were taken very literally. Things became, um, were taken literally, they became ossified. Uh, very comfortable, very respectable. So some, and I'm generalising like mad, as I'm talking about all these different kind of things, I'm generalising like mad, but that's the kind of gen generally what happened. So after several hundred years, there was another sort of revolution in thought, which is called the Mahayana, the Great Way. And the Mahayana developed the Bodhisattva ideal, which we've been, look, been looking at in the last series on the Bodhicharyavatara. And that's such a wonderful, inspiring ideal. But it is still one that you could take, you know, that after a while became perhaps a bit abstract. It became something that um, you might not be able to do in this lifetime. It became something that other people would do, not something that you could actually practice in your own life. Something so exalted that a person like me could never do it. Um, so, yeah, it became the Mahayana, to some extent, became a matter of talking about abstract ideas rather than actually having an actual transformative practice in daily life. So it's about, you know, people uh, will talk about ideas rather than actually looking at that really unglamorous work of looking what's really going on in our minds and our hearts and changing those deep habit energies we have. So it became about worshipping sacred divine beings from a vast distance without actually trying to bring sacredness into the way we behave, without trying to live more like sacred deities ourselves. So um, the second wave of Buddhism that became dominant, dominant throughout much of the Buddhist world, um, the Mahayana uh, became very popular. And um, Mahayana sutras are often very these marvellous cosmic visionary um, masterpieces that really express the most exalted spiritual ideals. But what they don't necessarily do is tell you how to actually do things in your own life. How do you express that amazing view, that worldview, in your own life on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, it's possible to get quite lost in the grandeur of the Mahayana vision and forget that what really matters is starting where we really are and dealing with all the mud and the muck that clogs up our own minds and our hearts. And it seems that the style of Buddhism that we call Tantric or Vajrayana, Tantra and Vajrayana can just be used as, you know, as the same thing to describe the same thing. Um, so this kind of Buddhism seems to have evolved as a way of getting back to the real experience and getting out of the world of abstractions and back to what's real. And it seems to have arisen from um, outside the respectable world of the monasteries uh, among small groups of practitioners who had a shared approach uh, centred around a guru. 
And it seems to have grown from a, a practice in both Buddhism and Hinduism that comes out of a shamanic, magical approach to the spiritual life. So um, an approach that would use magic as a way of invoking and focusing strong energies and strong emotions to um, achieve worldly ends. So you might use magic to destroy an enemy. You might use magic to uh, make someone fall in love with you. And Tantra is a kind of extension of this in which magical practices are used to invoke strong energies for the achievement of spiritual aims. So, for instance, we might use a strong energy to destroy the obstacles to our progress or to make ourselves fall in love with enlightenment. So it's using those magical energies for spiritual ends. So the Vajrayana developed out of this sort of magical tradition, and that's a kind of interesting place to start, both a strength and a weakness. Um, It's a strength because it uh, freed Buddhism from abstraction and from the kind of respectability that had started to happen. But it was a weakness because also the uh, Dharma got very mixed up with superstition, with folk belief, and perhaps lost contact sometimes with the aims of the Dharma and degenerated into folk magic, into black magic even. So, interesting, that's kind of interesting, but what relevance does it have for us? Um, Yes, so it's interesting that when um, Sangharachita, who founded the Tree Ratna Buddhist movement, when he first came back to the UK in the 1960s, um, there was already an existing Buddhist society that was um, exploring Buddhism. And people in the Buddhist society kept telling him that we must make Buddhism respectable. Because I suppose because it came from the East, there was a strong sense we need to make this very respectable and so it'll appeal to the middle classes. And um, that's what people thought was the right thing to do. But Sangharachas' response to that, that this is the last thing we should be trying to do. He felt we should really get back to the scary, exhilarating, challenging radicalism of the true Dharma, uh, which is in many ways completely opposed to the worldly views that are respectable in our society. So he said a few things that people found quite controversial. He said um, that instead of, you know, so instead of making Buddhism respectable, he said things to people like, if you're just working for money, if that's the only reason you're working so that you have money, just say to hell with financial security and all those other mind-forged manacles that keep you trapped in a dull, boring life, stop you from living a meaningful life, um, stop being brainwashed by the advertising industry and the politicians, the big money interests, do as little paid work as possible, do as little work as you can get away with, get off the treadmill and then join with others in creating a completely new kind of society that's based on, on dharmic values. So I think that Sangharachita saw that um, a respectable Buddhism becomes a safe, lukewarm Buddhism. And um, a little bit of lukewarm, safe, spiritual practice probably isn't going to bring out about much personal transformation. Because changing ingrained habits, seeing the reality that the Buddha saw when he sat under the Bodhi tree, um, you know, it's not easy to do that. And to really change at a deep level, we need intensity. So Buddhism needs to keep reinventing itself, getting back to the original spirit. So I think, you know, uh, most religions go through this thing where there's some kind of inspirational, quite wild founder, like Jesus Christ, for instance, found something, a particular way of living, and then over the years, it becomes very respectable, um, it becomes very safe, it becomes something that people just do one day of the week, they don't do every day of their lives. And then you have to kind of blow it all open again and start again, go back to the principles of, of what's going on. 
And um, what we're going to do in this series of talks over the next few months is we're going to be exploring uh, Tantric or Vajrayana Buddhism, which is one of the ways that um, the Buddhism got closer to the spirit of the Buddha's original teaching when the mainstream had maybe lo lost contact with it a bit. So Tantra, Tantra means woven, which is interesting because you'll probably heard of Pali sutras or suttas or uh, Mahayana Sutras, and Sutta means thread. And I think it's interesting that Tantra actually means uh, more woven together. There's something in that, yeah. Um, and, you know, we use the word Vajrayana or um, Tantra synonymously. So a Vajrayana is the uh, way of the Vajra. So there's some pictures of the Vajra, I hope. So you've probably all come across a Vajra, the, um, the diamond thunderbolt that cuts through to what's real, cuts through obstacles. And I've put a few, um, a few Vajras down at the front, so if you want to come up after the talk and just um, hold a Vajra and have a closer look at one if you haven't before, please do. I find there's something about holding a Vajra, it has a particular sort of power or something in the weight of it. So um, this is a very strong image, and um, so it's... It's diamond. Of itself, it won't get damaged, and it can cut through anything that it comes across, like a thunderbolt. Uh, you can imagine, you know, the, um, I think from, is it um, Norwegian mythology, the idea of Thor with the, you know, the thunderbolt that kind of comes down from the sky. And if you think of thunder, what it's like, or lightning, what it's like, that energy that's there, and actually it's quite scary as well, quite just can, can be quite destructive. So this is using that kind of energy for positive purposes. And so the Vajrayana is the way of the Vajra, the way of the diamond thunderbolt. And um, the Tantra is about um, going beyond, uh, beyond words to our direct experience, um, going to something, an experience that we can evoke, we can conjure up, we can glimpse with the help of symbols, images, mantras, and rituals. And um, there's a lot of very inspiring stuff in the Tantra, I hope you'll find, over the next few weeks. But um, I don't think we can just copy these traditional uh, forms of Tantra that have come down to us. Because they've come from the medieval Tibetans, Indians, Japanese. It's like they've come from people who live very different lives from us. So what we need to do is we need to look at the Tantra and pull out from it what's useful to us and, and sort of reinvent it. And you could say that we in Sri Ratna um, are engaged in forging a Western Tantra. So we're looking at a style of Buddhism that cuts through all those uh, incrustations of several thousand years of tradition in lots of different cultures. And we're looking you know, to get rid of all the abstractions, get back to a real-life Buddhism that really transformed people. And that's what we're looking at. Looking at how can we translate the, um, the original Tantra and Vajrayana, so that we get the same transformative cutting edge for ourselves in our lives. So to do that, we need to stand back, we need to look at the principles. Um, it's a huge area of the Tantra, so if you get caught up in all the details, um, Sangharachita uh, says it's like being caught in the jungle, and there's so much of it. So what we're going to do is just look at a few principles. Um, and there's a teacher in the Triratna tradition called Visantra, who has... Um, in his book, which is really worth looking at, actually, which is about um, tantric figures in, in Tibetan Buddhism. 
Um, he has drawn out seven main characteristics of the Tantra. And Vidanya's shortened those to five, so I'm using those five. <laughs> I should have shortened it again, shouldn't I? But anyway, we've got five. Okay, so the first one, the first principle behind, the, behind um, Tantra is that it works with symbols and magic. It grew out of a magical shamanic tradition, and it uses practices that are like magical practices to gain spiritual ends. Uh, tantric practice involved a lot of ritual, invoking powerful archetypal figures. It involved stepping into the world of myth and living out a mythic version of reality in our daily life. And we're going to have several talks on this aspect, looking at how we can use ritual, symbol, myth, archetypal figures in our practice so that we can bring all of our being, the conscious and the subconscious sides of ourselves, into our practice. So the second is that Tantra is concerned with energy. So sometimes in the spiritual life, it can seem like there's a conflict between being good, being a really good Buddhist, and having energy. Because um, a lot of our energy seems to come from the lower, coarser drives that seem to have more to do with the animal realm uh, than they do with the spiritual realm. But it does take a lot of energy to change, and we need to be beings who are full of energy, brimming over and overflowing with energy. Being enlightened doesn't mean being flat and stagnant and boring. It means having just so much energy that it just pours out of you. So we can't afford to cut off from those lower sources of energy, even if they don't seem very Buddhist. We need to transform our lower energies so they can help us. Um, and the third principle that Vasantra talks about is one of the ways that we do that. So Tantra makes use of the strongest experiences of life. So Tantra makes use of the strongest experiences that we, um, happen in our lives. So we know that when strong experiences happen to us, they bring up huge amounts of energy. When somebody falls in love, they often find a whole load of energy to travel and visit the person that they've fallen for, to uh, you know, write them really long letters or emails. It's amazing how much energy somebody can find if they fall in love with somebody. Um, if, we, you know, so if we really want something, we can put a lot of energy into it. If we really want a job, we can put a lot of energy into getting that job. If we're angry, we can be really full of energy. I find it, yeah, how energized I get when I'm angry is quite amazing. Or if we're afraid, sometimes that can make us, give us energy as well. And actually, compared to the energy in those things I was talking about, those things that are very powerful in our lives, the way we normally pursue our spiritual life is a bit half-hearted. So if we could redirect that kind of energy that gets stirred up by the big experiences of life, by, you know, falling in love, being angry... Um, and we could use it to propel us towards enlightenment, we'd get there a lot quicker. So the Vajrayana uses, sets out to use these energies. And um, one way that our approach in Tree Ratna could be called Vajrayana is our approach to pleasure. So um, a lot of our energy is tied up in the search for pleasure. And a figure that you've probably come across is Padmasambhava who we could say a great deal about. Probably quite a few of you were here when we had um, Padmasambhava Day not long ago. So Padmasambhava, a figure who's very much associated with transformation. And one of the things that he says is, I do not give up pleasure, I take it with me on the path. So there's something about we take our completely natural desire for pleasure and bring it onto our spiritual path. 
And what we need to do, therefore, is redirect our search for pleasure so that we get our pleasure from the things that really make us happy and fulfilled. So we raise the level of our being. So we can actually actively set out to um, refine ourselves, I suppose, and um, teach ourselves to get pleasure from things um, that are, are higher, perhaps, than things we just naturally would get pleasure from. So, for instance, with music, you might decide to teach yourself to uh, really understand classical music so that you can really engage with that and get pleasure from that. So... Um, so as well as pleasure, a lot of our energy is tied up in um, deep drives like aggression and fear. And we can even harness those to our spiritual life. So that's why in the Tantra there are some quite weird figures. Like Vajrapani, this figure here. So uh, Vajrapani, a wrathful deity, a wrathful figure, um, perhaps representing the way that we can redirect our energy, our anger and aggression towards the spiritual life. So we can have anger at what gets in the way. We can have anger at the, our own blockages. And that energy can burst through obstacles. We also get quite a lot of imagery in the Tantra to do with death. So these are, um, that's a mala made of bone, and that's a um, skull used in different rituals. Um, yeah, usually, um, or I think often, tantric practitioners will use bones, skulls, as part of their practice. Uh, well, f you know, because it reminds us of death, and death really motivates us. It's a very scary thing for most of us. And um, it also reminds us of impermanence, that we don't have forever to practice. So bringing in things that we associate with death, with fear, they can really motivate us to practice. And also... Images that are to do with aggression. So there's um, a demon dagger there and a cutter. So a demon dagger, what you do is um, you find the demons that are getting in your way, you use the dagger to pin them down, and then you can have a conversation with them. So it's a way of identifying your demons and, um, and getting to know them better if they keep running away from you. And the cutter can cut through the obstacles as well. So these um, images that are of what you might think of as weapons can be used in our practice. Yeah, okay. So um, we've looked at Tantra using transforming energy. Now, um, something that's really important in the Tantra is it starts at the highest point. So what that means is that Vajrayana practices often ask us to pretend that we're enlightened now, to act as if we're enlightened, rather than waiting for some future time. Because generally, the way we practice, of course, is we use the, rule, uh, the law of karma to gradually work towards becoming enlightened sometime in the future, way off. Um, whereas this is about, well, just use your imagination to think, what would it be like if I was enlightened now? How would I behave so um, we already do that in some ways. For instance, if you um, act in accordance with the precepts, you might not want to act in accordance with the precepts, but you see that they reflect the way that, the, that, that an enlightened mind would see the world, and so you follow the precepts anyway. So um, there's a kind of magical power, I think, in thinking, what would it be like if I was enlightened? And an interesting story that Vidania will tell more next week, which is the story of Merlin, so Merlin, the wizard, who, the magician, who lives backwards. So he knows what's going to happen already. So he starts old and gets younger. So um, he lives his life backwards. 
And a lot of us, particularly, I notice this in myself a lot, is I spend quite a lot of my life thinking about all the conditions that have caused me to be like I am today. And often, quite a lot of time, just really uh, reflecting on uh, unhelpful conditions that have led to me behave like I am today. Whereas this is a completely different approach, which is you look forward and you imagine the amazing, the great person you might be in the future, and you put your mind to that, and that's where you look. So you look forward rather than back. We're going to come on a little bit more about that later. So um, Tantra is also concerned with direct experience. So Tantra is concerned with direct experience. So that's the last of the um, principles of Tantra we're going to look at. So um, what that means is it's not ideas about what's happening or what we should be or what someone else should be. It's what is actually going on, our actual experience. And the traditional Tantra would sometimes do this by taking quite abstract spiritual ideas and make them much more direct and graphic and colourful and rooted in our experience and perhaps even dangerous and sensationalist, anything to kind of get your attention. So one way it does this is it embodies abstract ideas in everyday reality. So for instance, um, all Buddhists of whatever tradition um, revere the three refuges, as they're called, so the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And, um, you know, before we meditate, uh, when we come up after the tea break, we um, pay our respects to the three jewels, and we say, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Dharmaya, Namo Sanghaya. And what we're doing there is we're saying, I pay my respects, I pay homage to the Buddha, to the principle of enlightenment within me, to the Dharma, and to the Sangha. The Sangha is the community of practitioners. But um, what does it actually mean to, uh, to go for refuge? That's an expression of going for refuge. What does it mean to actually go for refuge? How do they manifest in our actual experience? So, for instance, the Buddha, if we're going to like, we pay our respect to the Buddha, we go for refuge to the Buddha, well, he's been dead for two and a half thousand years. So it's difficult for him, perhaps, to be a fact in our actual direct experience. And the Dharma, as you will know, is huge. You know, just the Pali Canon itself takes a whole shelf in our library. If you go and look at the shelves in the library downstairs, you'll see the Dharma is huge. You know, there's lots of different schools taking different uh, approaches um, who are aimed at different levels, different temperaments. So it can be a bit like, well, how can we centre our lives on something that's so vague and big as the whole of the Dharma? Thirdly, there's the Sangha. So um, traditionally, the Sangha is divided into the Arya Sangha, which is the noble Sangha, and that's the Sangha of enlightened beings and bodhisattvas. So that is, um, that is the Sangha that we would go for refuge to, the Arya Sangha, not the kind of um, unenlightened Sangha that we uh, presumably <laughs> are here. Um, so it would be difficult, in a way, perhaps, to have much of a connection with this kind of exalted Arya Sangha, this, uh, these spiritual beings. And I don't know how we would know as well, perhaps, if we did have a connection with those beings. So, the, the, so it's interesting to look at now how the Tantra managed to make those things more live for people and how we might do that now, because the two things aren't necessarily the same. So in terms of the Buddha, in traditional Tantra, the, um, we see... What would happen is we would see our guru, our teacher, as the Buddha. And we would teach ourselves to absolutely see our guru as the Buddha. And to kind of not take it, you know, turn a blind eye to anything that didn't fit into that idea that our teacher might be a Buddha, but to see them as an enlightened being. And the reason for that is because it would mean that we would then really um, 
you know, really connect with them. We would be open to them being a Buddha, and that would mean that we would grow. But that doesn't work so much for us. Um, firstly, we don't tend to think in Tree Ratna of having a guru in that traditional sense. Um, it's proved to be quite a dangerous idea in the West for both people who are gurus and for their followers as well. So we don't tend to do that. Um, so I wonder what we can do in our own experience to really bring the Buddha alive. How does the Buddha really manifest in our own experience? So the first thing we can do, which is similar, is we can... Um, well, we do have people who we might recognize who are more enlightened than we are or are further along the path than we are. People who seem to be kinder, more aware, um, have more energy in a particular way than us. And we don't need to think of them as Buddhas, but we can aspire to develop the qualities that we see in them, to take them as an example, to take their advice seriously, to use them as guides. So it's a bit like we can look for the Buddha in those people whilst knowing fully well that they're not Buddhas. That's one thing we can do. Another is we connect with the Buddha in our imagination. So... Um, in a way, imagination is actually a sense-direct experience if it's vivid. If we imagine something, if we bring it to mind, however we do that, whether it's visual or whether it's um, imagining being with somebody, we can have a really strong sense of somebody. So we also might have fictional experiences in our imagination, books we've read, people we've read about figures, fictional figures, films we've seen. And we can bring them to mind, the Buddha acting, how the, the Buddha seems to be acting in those people. We can imagine after ourselves, who is the most amazing person I can imagine? How magnificent might they be? And again, we could imagine ourselves as being magnificent as well. Not concentrating on what we're failing at, but concentrating on what we might be able to be amazing at. So that's one way to connect with the idea of the Buddha, is through our imagination. Another is through our experience of beauty. So we will all have that experience of our, our heart lifting when we um, come across beauty. So you might see it in the sky, you might see it in the sea, the mountains, the sunset. It might happen in a piece of music, a work of art. Something that seems to kind of refer to something that's bigger than itself. And we can allow that heart opening to lead us to something bigger, to beauty. And that is what the Buddha's like. So that kind of sense of our heart opening, when we allow that, and sometimes we might not pay much attention to it, actually, but we can actually take up a practice of allowing ourselves to really be open to our heart opening with beauty. Um, I went to Snowdonia this weekend, and um, there's just this extraordinarily austere, huge... I think granite, I'm not sure, granite cliffs called the Devil's Kitchen with this pool of water below that was just so kind of austerely beautiful. It just really lifted me up. There was something very amazing about it. Or I remember visiting the Sagrada Familia, the cathedral in, in um, Barcelona that's still being built, just about. And if you go in there, there's stained glass windows that the light comes through. There's a sense of height, and there's something really beautiful there that just really wakes you up. So there'll be things that you've experienced like that. And there's something about really allowing ourselves to enjoy those, to enjoy those. Um, so that's how we might connect with the Buddha, with our imagination, with our experience of beauty, um, yeah, with our experience. So what about the Dharma? How do we connect with all this huge amount of Dharma that is available to us? 
So traditionally, what they'd do in the tantric experience is that they would make, um, they'd see what's called the yidam, which is a figure that you meditate on, an enlightened figure that you meditate on, and they would see that figure as expressing the Dharma. And um, in Sri Ratna, when we're ordained, we take on a figure usually to meditate on. And um, at first, I kind of I was a bit confused about how this would work in terms of it being the Dharma. But I think there's something about what the Dharma really is, the teachings of the, of the Buddha, is it's not just kind of lots of ideas about things. It's the actual experience of compassion or of wisdom or of, of energy. Um, and by meditating on a figure every day, you get much more of an experience of that compassion. The figure that I meditate on is about, uh, about light and love. I get more of that experience than if I was to kind of read a little, um, some sentences about it. So that's why in the original Tantra they would use the figure, the Yidam, to meditate on and see the Yidam as being an expression of the Dharma. But for us, that might not work. That might not work. So perhaps what we can think of is that um, what we need to do is focus on a little bit of the Dharma, just a tiny bit of the Dharma that we're practicing right now. So if we're Mitras, it might be something in Mitra study. Um, it might be a precept that we want to act more and more. So for instance, we might take on that we want to be more mindful. And we might think, well, let's really bring our imagination to it. Because actually being mindful can feel a bit sound, maybe like it might be a bit boring. A bit kind of like, um, oh, I don't know, you sit doing nothing, just kind of like watching the world or something. But we could think of mindfulness perhaps as being, um, if we were like a ninja or a samurai, what would it be like to go around the whole day being mindful in a way where we're completely alert and relaxed and um, aware of what's going on within us and aware of what's going on with other people and outside of us. So we can use our imagination there to really connect with something like mindfulness in a different way. Um, you might also choose like, to have a, sm a short, pithy bit of dharma that you just carry around with you, that you might learn off by heart. And a couple of series ago, you'll remember we did the seven-point mind training series. And for people who were able to come, Aryadasa made these lovely little cards with slogans on that I still see people have, actually. Like, I noticed the other day someone still got one on the back of her phone. So those slogans were great because you could like, really remember those, um, you know, memorize them and then practice them throughout your life. So for instance, one slogan was, be grateful to everyone. So that was just saying, whoever I meet, however difficult they are, they are a practice, you know, I can be grateful to them because it's a practice for me, a time for me to practice metta. Um, another line would be something like, always be the first to smile. So you might take that as your practice for the week. So just having a little bit of dharma that we practice and we really make part of our lives um, might be the kind of modern tantric way of approaching going for refuge to the Dharma. So the third um, is the, the Sangha, the Sangha jewel that we go for refuge to. So how did they, um, at the time of the Tantra, how did they express that? Like this. Okay, so this is Vajrayogini. Vajrayogini. Uh, Vajrayogini is a darkani. She is um, a naked female sky dancer. So in um, Indian, modern Indian languages, she's a female flesh-eating demoness. Um, you can see that she is trampling on somebody. She's got um, a whole load of skulls and heads around her neck. This is another version of her. In this one, she's trampling on a couple more people, and she's... Um, pouring sort of, she's, it's like she's drinking blood from a skull cup. So she's a very strong image. 
So how does that represent the Sangha? <laughs> so, um, so Sangha Achita, um, feel um, interprets it that it, um, what she's expressing, what the sky dance, what Vajrayogini is expressing, is liberated blissful energy um, that comes from being naked, from being open, from being without pretenses. So Sangha, spiritual friendship, is an, a context in which we can start to open up with each other. We can let down our defences. We can um, become, as it were, naked. We can feel that it's okay to show all of ourselves to each other. So we can really be ourselves. We can really develop deep communication with other people without all the masks and the usual kind of um, layers and layers and layers and layers of clothing that we normally have. And this openness, this nakedness, um, releases a lot of energy, a lot of bliss. It energizes us and it brings joy. So maybe that's partly why the, uh, the darkening was the um, image to represent the Sangha. For us, maybe Vajrayogini works really, or the darkening works really well for you, that's great. Another way we can see the Sangha um, as going for refuge to the Sangha in a very kind of real way is, well, how we work together, actually. So here we are. We're a real Buddhist community. We've all got flaws. Um, but if we're going to get anywhere with our practice, we need to be able to um, get on with each other, to forgive each other our flaws, to work on our own faults that cut ourselves off from other people, to develop friendships, to learn to be more open, um, and to let myself be myself. Something about seeing ourselves as engaged in a common project, which is let it, and I can let go of my individualism and join in. So this can be the Sangha jewel for us. This can be the kind of modern tantric way that we um, actually, in a very real way, practice Sangha with each other. So we've looked at these three refuges, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And that's just one way that we might be able to bring abstract ideas down to earth and make them part of our every real, concrete, everyday experience. And we're going to have come across lots of other examples as we go through the series. It runs right through the tantric approach. So um, I'm just going to finish nearly today by coming back to look at um, this one of Sancha's characteristics, which is that one that tantra begins at the highest point. So that's where we act as if we are already enlightened. So we get up each day and we manifest as much enlightenment as we can, be what we can. Why wait, in a way? Why wait? Because the world needs more enlightenment. The world needs more kindness, openness, energy, awareness. So why not just act as if we already have that? So we can think of ourselves as becoming a Vajra, a Vajra, that diamond that cuts through the old habits, the old patterns, the deadening routine, and the Vajra that faces each moment, moment by moment, um, cutting through to what's really going on. So we can be the Dharma, and we can manifest as much of the awakened state as we can imagine. And um, we can be, like, think of ourselves as being like a warrior in battle, so really bringing our awareness to defending ourselves against all those kind of deadening, seductive, cosy pool of old patterns. Uh, because what humans want to do is we want to be comfortable. We don't want to face up to reality which is not comfortable. Um, interestingly, that all these Buddhist movements have in a way become more comfortable over the years and then they need to be blown apart. And that's what we need to do with ourselves. We need to look to see when our Buddhist practice might mean we're actually just settling down and can we blow that apart again? Can we really um, 
make each moment an opportunity to practice. So the Buddha said we should face each moment like someone whose turban is on fire. So like someone whose turban is on fire. And where does the fire come from? Well, it's caused by these old, boring ways of being. So what we need to do is, um, in order to uh, put out the fire, is to really manifest as much of this kind of upliftedness as energy, clarity, truth, metta as we can muster. And to act as if we were the enlightened being we will become, bringing this into the present. So one very simple way to do that is to um, think to ourselves, well, what would the Buddha do now? Or what would Padmasambhava do in this situation? What would Vajrayogini do? What would Tara, the very beautiful uh, Rupa of Tara on the shrine at the moment, what would Tara do in this situation? So uh, can I see myself? Can I see through the Buddha's eyes? If I've got a really difficult meeting at work, what would it be like to approach that with the, um, the kindness of the Buddha or the energy of Padmasambhava or the energy of uh, Vajrayogini? Um, so I can think of myself as being enlightened. I can also see other people as being enlightened. So what would it be like to go into that difficult meeting and think, actually, all these people here are enlightened. Um, it's just they're kind of helping me out by being a bit annoying today. <laughs> so, um, so, so go into that situation, seeing other beings as being enlightened as well. And you could plan, you could look ahead. And I think there's something very magical that can come to our experience if we bring this awareness of the magical possibility of every moment, of that we could look at the world as if we were enlightened. And just a little example, actually, is like a little golden leaf has come here, which is great, because today I was just walking along, and I was really caught up in my own thoughts, and um, suddenly I noticed that the floor was golden. You know, there were just these beautiful leaves that had fallen everywhere. And they were absolutely, when I paid attention to them, they were completely beautiful and magical and wonderful. But I'd been so full of my own kind of concerns up in my head that I hadn't seen them at first. So there's something about that we can bring an awareness to the world where we see it as a much more magical and beautiful place. Um, yeah, if we live from what is highest in us. So um, I'm just going to end with a short quote from William Blake, because um, maybe part of finding the Tantra, the Vajrayana, in, um, in now is that we use um, the inspiration of our own culture. So it's a, a verse that I'm sure you'll know. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. I'm going to read it again, actually. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wild flower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 